Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Nolan Sammer with Infinite Banking Radio, and uh, I'm excited about today's episode. What I'm going to be talking about is getting into the details of how to position seller financing when you're discussing buying a piece of property from a seller. A lot of people, when they hear things like seller financing or creative real estate deals, they don't really get into the weeds, and the seller most of the time uh, is very hesitant because it's not positioned correctly. And so what I want to get into today is going over the steps and how you are preparing your seller and how you get into these situations where you're able to be in deals, whether it's a $100,000 house or it's a million-dollar building, how you can consistently be in deals for no money if you do it the right way and you prepare your seller accordingly. So before I jump into the weeds on this and the step-by-step system, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. My Financial Snapshot is the official sponsor of the Infinite Banking Radio podcast. My Financial Snapshot builds personal financial tools to help you track your finances. Their Snapshot tool is the first easy-to-use and reusable personal financial statement builder available online. It's the perfect solution for real estate investors and business owners. Their budgeting tool takes the hassle of budgeting away and lets you focus on the results of your budget. Individuals can get unlimited access to their tools and educational resources for $44.99 a year or $6.99 a month. For Infinite Banking Radio listeners, use coupon code INFINITE20 for 20% off your subscription for life. Use the link in the description and get started making personal finance easy and simple today. All right, so again, really what I want to get into today is talking about how to position seller financing to sellers when you're going to purchase their piece of real estate. Now, again, we can talk about, you know, residential real estate and homes and, you know, single family houses and things like that. But again, I'm more of a commercial guy. And if you're trying to step up your level of real estate, the next logical step, whether you have one rental or you have a billion rentals, the next logical move is to get into the commercial space, whether that's retail, whether that's office, which again, I'm not really huge fans of that. I'm more of a fan of an industrial, you know, like the blue collar jobs and, uh, you know, the trades, because I just don't see that's going anywhere. But here's, let me, let me explain to you guys exactly how I get into these deals and how we're able to consistently get sellers to not only finance us, finance us the down payment, but what you'll end up finding as I, as I you know, kind of open this up, you'll discover that it's actually these sellers are wanting to leave even more money in the deal, okay? So let's just say out of the gate, and this is what I teach in my uh, private mentorship. We have what is called the Commercial Real Estate Collective, the CRE Collective, where we have a mentorship. It's a small group of people that are all wanting to take action in commercial real estate. And so if that's somebody that like you that's interested in that, we'd love to have you. There's a link, I'm sure, in the in the episode bio here. But what we're talking about here, let's just talk about a million dollar piece of real estate. Uh, Talk about a 10,000 square foot warehouse or 20,000 square foot warehouse, depending upon your location in the country, wherever you are. But most of the time that when I'm going and buying real estate, I am personally never actually looking for that deal myself. What I've discovered is if I can go out and find the team and assemble my team of experts where I have my brokers, I have my leasing agents, I have my accountant, my contractors, my attorneys, my property and casualty insurance guys, and even my life insurance broker, my agent, Mike Schwally, if you're listening, you're awesome. All of these guys that are on my team that help me go and do deals. So what I discovered is 
before when I was just getting started in commercial real estate, not so much residential, but commercial, I, I imagine yourself having a shotgun and just pulling the trigger and you have this huge kick on your shoulder and you're just spraying bullets. You're just trying to shoot anything that moves. Well, after you discover and you play the game for a little bit, you realize that there's a lot of this stuff is trash and a very small amount of stuff that you're trying to shoot, it actually hits. So what I really started to discover is I wanted to dial in the scope and I switched out a shotgun more for a rifle and I really dialed in the scope to go after something specifically that I want to find, a particular type of deal. And let me explain the criteria that I've discovered. Now, again, depending upon what location in the country you are, this might vary depending upon income and and size and everything. But generally, what I've discovered is I like to look for real estate that's anywhere from 5,000 to 25,000 square feet of industrial warehouse. The ceiling is maybe 20 feet high or 15 feet high, whatever it is. It's open floor plan. There's not a lot of office. It's just warehouse space. Because what that style of building begins to to find or that type of tenant that starts to migrate towards that space is a blue collar tradesman or tradeswoman or whatever you want to say. But what you discover is that those sizes of businesses or buildings are attractive to not mom and poppers, but actual business owners. And so the tenants are earning or they're grossing anywhere from $2 million to $25 million in gross revenue, okay? And so what I'm getting at, though, is that if you're making over a million dollars a year in gross revenue, and I'm not talking about net, I'm not talking about margins, I'm just talking about just gross income that's coming into their pocket every single year, these business owners are actually sophisticated. They may not run their business and their books as efficiently as they possibly can, but most importantly, they discover and they understand the differences between variable costs and fixed costs. Now, if you're a business person or you're not a business person, a fixed co- a variable cost is talking about when you go and purchase a co- when you go purchase a good, right? Let's say that you go in and you uh, sell Tupperware, for example. A Tupperware thing is going to cost you 10 bucks. You go and flip it for 15. You made $5 in spread, right? It's a, not a bad move. You made 50% return on your on your money. That's a that's and, but the thing is is that if you're getting that from a different country or somewhere else, your cost of good is $10 and you're selling at 15, so you're capturing a spread. That is a variable cost. You don't have any control over that. On the other hand, rent when you rent the space from me or this building, that is a fixed cost. Rent is a fixed cost in the bottom line. So to get from A to B, what I'm saying is, if you have a business owner that is making seven plus or even eight figures a year in gross revenue, they understand that rent is a fixed cost. That means that you're never going to have a problem ACHing your tenant with rent, okay? So to distill that down and back that back up for a second, We are looking for property, at least where I am in Birmingham and kind of the surrounding areas. I'm looking for space from five to twenty-five thousand square feet. And again, there's you know there's variations. Sometimes there's there's businesses that are have fifteen-year leases that are in fifty thousand square foot. I'd be open to looking at that. But if you're looking for buildings that are vacant out of the gate, which I'll get into in a second, you're looking for vacant warehouses. Those those spaces tend to be the most uh, lucrative size spaces for those types of businesses, not Fortune 500 businesses and not mom and poppers. So you've got this really nice little wedge in the middle where you have tenants that are um, competent, they're sophisticated, but they're also not Fortune 500s or mom and poppers. Okay. Now, 
Now that I've discovered exactly what I'm looking for, I go to my broker and I tell them exactly what I just said. I'm looking for this style of space, this type of tenant. My leasing agent knows what I'm looking for. But then if you want to get to the third level, even my banker knows what style of tenant and what type of building that I'm looking at and what type of property that I like to invest in. So then you get into the weeds after you develop the relationship with those bankers. Doesn't really, it's not even that difficult to do. All you really need to do is send them their, you know, your personal financial statement, maybe a couple years of tax returns, because these buildings, especially in commercial, it's more about uh, the lease and it's more about the tenant and the strength of the tenant than it really is you personally guaranteeing the debt. Most banks prefer you to personally guarantee debt unless you've got like a Walgreens or like a Target or something, which is a, you know, a whole different echelon of real estate, but that's non-recourse debt versus a a tenant that's like a, a blue collar tradesman, like a glass supply or a pharmaceutical distribution businesses, those are those are more going to rely on you as the personal guarantor, but the bank's really looking at the lease and the tenant as really the strength of that debt, okay? So, but let's just say that my banker has, or I'm sorry, my, my broker has brought that deal to me, and it's a 15,000 square foot, you know, building, whatever it is. Uh, it could be higher, could be, could be more, could be less, whatever. Let's just call 15,000 square feet. We can get into the weeds talking more about the rent per foot and what the cap rates are in the market and things like that. But let's just talk about um, how I go and negotiate this with the seller, right? Because again, we're trying to find ways to get into deals with no money. Again, what I'm trying to do before I even approach the seller about any creativity, I just want to tie the deal up, okay? I'm not talking, I don't want to come up to him and say, if you're selling this building to me for a million dollars, hypothetically, again, whatever the, whatever the details are, you're selling this 15,000 square foot warehouse to me and uh, I'm buying it for a million dollars. I don't want to go out of the gate and say, hey, Mr. Seller, would you finance me half a million dollars on this? Would you own or finance? And you start using words like this because remember, this seller is not probably a real estate person. They're not like an investor, right? If they're an owner occupant, they're most likely a distribution business. They're a glass supply company. They fabricate steel. They do something other than real estate. And that's what they're really good at. They're experts in that. So when you start introducing new vocabulary, things like second position lien, owner financing, seller carryback, you start saying these words, you start to rattle the seller because Again, maybe you're the same way as I am when I was first jumping into commercial and you started using all this vocabulary and this, this language that I didn't know. Um, when it's unknown, it's, it immediately closes that door. So what I'm getting at is do not initially out of the gate go and position seller financing. Don't do that. Go out of the gate and tie the deal up. Do not focus on trying to get creative out of the gate, okay? So go back to what I said. Seller finance, you know, the, the the your broker. After you told him exactly what you were looking for, he finds that perfect deal that you're lo- you're looking for. You tie it up; it's a million bucks, right? Hypothetically, you know, we get cute. We can we can again talk metrics all day long, what it's really worth at the end. But I just want to talk about how you negotiate the deal. Okay, so we've got the deal tied up for a million dollars. Whether the earnest money was two thousand or ten thousand, it's irrelevant. We've tied the deal up. We now have the property under contract. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to bypass my brokers, my selling and the buying broker, and I'm going to go speak directly with this seller, okay? What I really want to focus on with this seller is I want to sit down and learn more about his business. I want to have this conversation and figure out, okay, where are you? What are you trying to accomplish? I understand that you just sold this business or you're trying to sell the business, but you're trying to get out of this building, right? So I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm very, very intent about trying to hear what this guy is saying. What you're going to discover is that this seller is going to say multiple times, 
nine out of 10 times is that he is worried about Uncle Sam. He's worried about capital gains tax. When he sells a business, when he sells a building, whatever you bought it for, whatever you sell it for, that's spread, that's Uncle Sam's. He's getting a slice of that. So I'm listening very intently for him to say or mention anything about the government and paying capital gains tax. So once you hear that, right, that's, that's got to be the red flag. That's got to be the trigger in your mind. Say, you have a solution. So here's the thing. I had a conversation with a guy about this earlier. When you are positioning a seller finance deal, right, you don't just go and start talking about yourself, how it's going to help me or how it's going to help whatever, how you're able to get a new deal for no money. That's not the point. What you have to convey over to the seller is that you are in the business of squeezing juice out of every single deal. Again, remember, your seller is in a trades business, right? He's, in a, he's a plumber. He's a, he's a steel fabricator. He's a glass supply guy. Whatever his business is, he's not in real estate. So when you go and start talking about all this verbiage and this language, it's irrelevant. Number one, it is is irrelevant to him, but it's also foreign, so it spooks him. So what you need to be doing is positioning something to where he can understand. Again, you sit down and say, look, Mr. Seller, you mentioned a couple of times that you're not afraid of the government, but the fact that you got to pay a huge check to Uncle Sam in taxes. So I understand that you're in the business of XYZ business. I, this is not the first property that I've ever purchased in my life, and it's not going to be the last. What I've discovered, though, is that I am in the business, after doing all these deals, I am in the business of squeezing every single ounce of juice as I possibly can out of real estate transactions. All I want to do is find a way on the buying and the selling side how to make the most money. Because if you really think about it, Mr. Seller, it's not me versus you. It's you and me versus the government. How can we keep as much money in our pocket as we possibly can? And so once I discover and I I position it that way, the seller becomes maybe a little bit more open to it. And so what I say is, look, out of the gate, if you never met me, you probably would have done this deal this particular way, which I kind of call scenario when I have a one pager that you may have seen, you may not have seen, it's on on my social media. But what I do is I say, look, you bought this property for this, you're selling it for this. After closing costs and commissions, you're going to have to pay this amount of money. Call it whatever the amount, you know, call it 200 grand in taxes. At this percent tax bracket, this is what you're going to owe. This is what your total walk away number is going to be. That's what you were going to have to pay to Uncle Sam if you would have never met me. But, but, if for just one second you were open minded, just for one second you wanted to save a couple extra bucks in taxes, Hold on and let's talk about this. Are you open-minded? You ask these kind of qualifying questions and they're going to say, well, yeah, I'm open-minded. I mean, what do you got for me? They're always intrigued because they're business owners, right? They're entrepreneurs. They understand you and how we think about this stuff. So then I position them. This is how you word it. I position them. I say, look, instead of you paying this amount of money, on, you know, your, your tax bracket is this and you being paying this amount of taxes and owed, what if you were to leave this amount of money in the deal. What if you left some money in this deal? What do you think that would change? How would that change your tax bracket? Well, I don't know. You tell me, Nolan. Well, let's talk about it. So what you end up doing is you position and you use the words, leave money in the deal. You don't ever mention anything about a second position mortgage. You don't say anything about seller or owner financing. You don't talk about anything other than leaving money in the deal because it's discreet and it doesn't give away anything that doesn't need to be said. So what they're really doing on paper is they're actually taking a second position lien behind your bank. So what I'm getting at is a million dollar building. 
the bank is going to bring $750,000 in the first position mortgage. The seller is going to leave $250,000 in this deal, which is him financing you the down payment. Therefore, you are in the deal for no money. So for you, it's a win because you're in the deal for no money. You just bought a million dollar building with, again, no cash out of your pocket. For the seller, the reason why it makes sense for him is because instead of him just capturing this huge $1 million capital gain in one year, he's actually able to separate those capital gains into two separate years. And not only that $250,000 that he would have otherwise captured and paid taxes on, he's leaving that money in the deal. I'm going to pay him, you know, whatever you negotiate, call it 8% interest year over year, whatever it looks like for the next three to five years, 36 to 60 months. And then after those three to six, you know, 36 to 60 months, you're going to refinance your first position mortgage at a higher valuation because, again, you bought the deal at a good deal. And then you're going to refinance it and you're going to pay off your second position mortgage. But for your seller, he's in a great position because he's now in a lower tax bracket. He's not selling his business and all of his equipment all the, and his buildings all in one year. So he's in a much lower tax bracket in, this, in that third or fifth year. So therefore, he's in a lot smaller of a tax bracket, and then now he's going to be able to keep more money in his pocket all the while he earned that cash flow over those last couple of years. All the while, you were in the deal for no money, and you had the opportunity to increase the intrinsic value of the building because you were out there, you you bought the deal at a good price, the rent was under market, or you were able to find a tenant and lease the space up, right? So those are a couple ways that it works. But let's just say, for example that your seller, for whatever reason, his wife or her husband or whatever the situation is, they don't want to do it. They don't find the value in saving money in taxes and they just want out, right? Everybody just wants out. So what do you do? You have to pivot. You have to find a solution as to how to get out of that or not to get out of it, but how you can still do the deal with no money. Because what I've discovered is every property that I purchase, the only way that I know this is a good deal is if I have an infinite return on cash, meaning I want to have zero dollars. People talk, oh, it's a 15%, it's an 18%, 30% return on cash. Not good enough for me. It's got to be an infinite return. Meaning if I'm making $10,000 a year in cash flow, whatever the number is, could be $100 million, whatever, as long as there is a denominator of zero, meaning I'm dividing whatever I earn by zero, it's a good deal. I don't care if it's 5 bucks or it's $50 million, it doesn't matter. Okay, so let's just say, for example, though, that the seller does not want to do seller financing after I've laid it out there, after I'm talking about how his wife says, hey, I don't care, honey. I still want to just get out of the deal. Again, which is foolish, but people have their reasons and they lose money, whatever the sitch is. Now what we have to do is we have to pivot. So what you can do is most people would say, well, I don't have any money or I don't have $300,000 in cash or whatever the situation is. Um, actually, let me back up really quickly. Most of the time, what I was going to say is um, after I, I go and position this this to the seller. And I say, Hey, you know, you want to leave this money in the deal. And I say, go review this with your CPA, have your accountant look at it and tell me what you think. And I say, I'm not a, I, I don't, I'm not Jafar. I can't predict the future. I don't have a magic eight ball, but I'm willing to bet after you talk with your CPA that he is going to see if you can leave even more money in this deal. And he's like, ha Okay. What do you know? Three days later, after he's reviewed it with his account, his accountant comes back and says, well, no, and that's actually kind of funny. I know that you were asking us to only you know, leave $200,000 in the deal, but do you think it would be possible for us to leave $350,000 in the deal? It happens nine times out of 10 times because what their accountant's going to realize is, hey, what if we can lower their taxable income this year and then also shift some of those capital gains into the future years too? So they actually end up wanting to leave more money in the deal. It's kind of comical because 
out of the gate, if you were to ever position, oh, would you sell or finance this? The immediate response is no. But when it's worded as you being a real estate consultant to them to try and help them save money, they end up wanting to leave more money in the deal. It's, it's kind of amazing how that works. Okay. Let's just say that for whatever reason that, again, our seller does not want to do that. He can't see the value in it, which again, it doesn't happen every day, but it does sometimes. It's happened in the past to me. But what you end up doing is having to find a way to raise the capital, right? Everyone hears about raising money, finding ways to do deals with you know, other people's money. We all hear about the OPM, you know, whatever. But what I've discovered is the easiest way to do this, of course, is to build out an email list. Everyone's talked about that. You've heard of it on Facebook Marketplace. Oh, oh, I'd be interested. Leave me, you know, here's my email. DM me, whatever. You know, that's that's really for the birds. Those are basically tire kickers. Don't really talk to those people because they're not action takers. What I've discovered the best way to raise capital is go, you know, I'm 32. My parents are in their early 60s. The majority of those of those people in their 60s, you know, at least my parents' age, a lot of them have been paying into their home for the last probably 20 to 25 years, right? They've built up equity in their home. So what I've discovered when I was first really starting to raise capital, again, it's kind of weird out of the gate going after your parents' friends, but again, it's a win-win for them because they've got a bunch of equity that I call debt equity. It's just stagnant water basically in a, in a pond sitting there not doing anything, collecting algae. What we can show your, your parents, friends, or even your parents is that if you have money sitting in a home equity line or, or you have money just sitting in your house that's just debt equity, have your parents or your parents' friends create some type of home equity line of credit and then borrow against their home. So what you can do is if you're buying a million-dollar building, you only need four of your parents' friends at $50,000 a pop to raise $200,000, and you can still borrow $800,000 from the bank and still be in that deal for no money. You can get really creative talking about giving up equity or having them take in a second position or however you want to work it. But here's how you structure um, the cash flow on this. Let's say this building's throwing off $50,000 a year in net cash flow, right? Let's say after we earned income, we service our debt, the cash flow that we're taking home on this property is 50 grand straight up and down. Normally, when you split the equity with an investor or with a syndication limited partner, call it 50-50 or whatever it is. Let's say the general partner normally is like 15%. The limited partner is 85% equity. You give your investor 8% preferred return. And then whatever over the top, there's a waterfall and you end up as a general partner getting a fee and also 20% of the cash flow after you prefer after you give out the preferred return. I think that's a little murky. That's a little in the weeds. And also too, I think it's a little deceptive and a little misleading to a lot of limited partners who are just trying to get into real estate. I like to keep this thing as simple as I possibly can. So what I like to do is instead I say, look, Mr. You know, parents, mom and dad, mom and dad's friends, whoever, what I'm going to do is I'm going to split this equity with you 50-50. You're going to get 50% of this building. I'm going to get 50% of this building. But I'm going to do all of the work. I'm going to manage everything. You're going to get the ACH. I'm going to set everything up. You're, not, you're going to be the most passive investor of all time. But instead of us splitting the cash flow, the $50,000, 25 and 25, I'm going to give you 100% of the cash flow until you get every dollar of your principal repaid back to you. The reason why this works is because there's two reasons. Number one, me as an investor, me as a general partner, I'm really focused on two things. I want to have equity in buildings because I'm playing the long game and I want to have depreciation. That's a whole other story on this besides this call or besides this episode. 
But when you start taking bonus depreciation, you can actually take a massive loss, a deduction off of that property in the very first year, and it can offset against your earned income, whether it's a W-2 or a 1099 job. And you can essentially lower your W-2 or 1099 down to basically zero. And anything that your employer was withholding, you're going to get that refunded back to you because of the depreciation from that building. So for me as a general partner in that syndicate, or me as a, as you know, just call it the manager of the of the property, I'm going to take 50% equity because I want the depreciation and I want to borrow money. The reason I want to borrow money is because I know when I borrow this amount of money over time, the dollar is going to dilute. It's going to lose value. Inflation is going to happen. It's inevitable. It's been inevitable. But also because I'm going to be able to pay those dollars back with cheaper dollars in the future, plus also my rent. The leases have 3% rent increases each and every year. So I know that I'm going to have my cash flow. My spread is going to grow and grow every single year while my debt service stays the same. So now let's talk about why I want to give the 100% cash flow to my investors. Because again, it doesn't really matter to me about cash flow. I'm really not that focused on earning you know, a rate of return. Because again, at the end of the day, let's say a building I buy it for a million dollars and the cash flow is 50 grand. That's really not going to move the needle for me. Maybe it is for you. I don't know. Of course, I like to make an extra $50,000. But most importantly to me, again, like I said, that depreciation deduction is what's really going to put a lot more money in my pocket versus a couple of pennies of cash flow. So again, what I discovered for my other investors or for my limited partners that are investing capital with me, getting their money back in their pocket is more important to me than anything else. Because think about it, instead of them making $25,000 and them injecting 200 grand, that's going to take them eight years to make their money back. If I was able to get them $50,000 a year, they just cut half of the time that they can actually earn their return on their money and they're going to want to re-up and they're going to want to do it again with me. But most importantly, it allows me to get into deals. That's where my head really is. It allows me to do more volume of real estate transactions because if you just show up every single time with your own money of 200 grand, you're only going to be limited by how much capital that you actually have. So that's kind of really where my head is at the end of the day is out of the gate, you go and tell your broker exactly what you're looking for. After your broker finds exactly what you're looking for, you go and negotiate with the seller exactly how to finance the down payment. If for whatever reason that seller does not want to do the deal with you, which again, nine times out of 10 he is, especially when you position it the right way, even if he doesn't want to do it, then we start raising the money. And the first people that you go to are for the people that have equity in their homes. Believe it or not, the home equity lines right now really aren't that expensive. They're actually cheaper than the secondary market right now. You can get HELOCs at like five and a half, six percent right now, interest only. And you're talking about being able to provide returns to people that are 15, 18, 20 percent return on a piece of real estate. They're able to capture a serious spread in the middle there that's going to allow them to rinse and repeat and do more deals. And now they look at you as if you walk on water. And then the next time you have an opportunity, not only they're going to want to jump on it, but they're also going to tell their friends and you're going to be able to do more and more deals every single time you just created a larger limited partner pool of investors that want to partner with you. Now, again, this does not happen overnight. I don't want to sound like I'm just some magician and it happens. Oh man, you you find a building. Oh, I found this broker. It's perfect. Everything's great. It's not how it works. You've got to play the game. You've got to do your homework. You've got to do your due diligence. You've got to build relationships with brokers and bankers and leasing guys and accountants and contractors and everybody 
but it will pay off if you play the game. Again, it does not happen overnight. I've been very fortunate, but I've also worked very hard to make those relationships and build those relationships because when you do, you discover that you don't have to do as much work. You're just more of like a puppeteer, just making sure and orchestrating everybody. You're just the conductor in the orchestra, making sure everybody is playing and doing what they're supposed to do. And then therefore you can scale your business from there. But if you focus on trying to do every single little thing by yourself, you're just going to basically spin your tires and you're going to get jaded and then you're going to get worn out and you're going to say, this isn't fair. It doesn't work for me. This real estate idea just simply is fake. The bigger pockets, the rich dad, poor dad, it's not real. It is real, but you've just got to play the game and you got to take the right steps versus trying to jump from, you know, home plate all the way to third base. You got to hit first, you got to hit second before you slide into third base. So again, guys, that's kind of how I do real estate deals. It's kind of what I do as often as I possibly can every day. It doesn't actually work that way every single time. But man, if you stick to that script and that system, believe it or not, it's going to work. It, it's going to work 99 out of 100 times. I, I, it hasn't worked for me. It hasn't not worked for me yet. But if you play that game, I'm sure there will be a time down the road where one of those two options don't work. But if you're buying good real estate and you have the right team and you're sourcing good deals and you have good partners and you position your seller financing accordingly, I found it to be some way to where it doesn't never not work. So again, guys, I teach this in our our commercial real estate collective. We do biweekly calls. I mean, every single other week, we have a community on school, S-K-O-O-L. We do these, um, all the videos that we've been together. You have all of my pro formas. We have a live event, October 5th and 6th in Birmingham. If you're going to be around, I'd love to have you. Um, it's going to be great. We're going to just have my account, my contractors, my brokers, my property and casualty insurance guys. And then most importantly, on Friday morning, after we go and break down all the deals, we're going to get in the uh, passenger bus and we're going to drive and look at every single one of the properties that I own to where you can get your hands and eyes on every single one of them. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be a great event and we would love to have you. So thanks so much for sticking around, y'all. And I guess we will see you on the other side. Thanks for sticking around. See you then.